A scripture lesson for this first Sunday in Advent is Matthew 1, starting at verse 17 and continuing through verse 25. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Now, the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Lord, look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had born a son. And he named him Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. For the next few Sundays in Advent, three of the four of them to be precise, our preaching will explore how three of the New Testament Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John, uniquely frame our understanding of the coming Christ in their opening pages and chapters. Don't worry, Mark fans, we will hear from him after Christmas. But today, we get to play with Matthew. A gospel whose opening words would not necessarily win a prize for catching our attention. Here's how Matthew starts the gospel. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and so forth and so on. Listening to genealogies in the church can be an exercise in tedium and boredom, but not here at Westminster, (laughs) because we have had Casey, our storyteller, who twice in recent years has impressively and dramatically told the entire genealogy of Matthew completely from memory, with all of us hanging on every word, wondering, will she remember? (laughs) Or will she forget? In fact, let's play this game now. Okay, Casey. (laughs) Abijah was the father of? Abiud? No. No. Asaph. Asaph. Yep. Asaph was the father of? Jehoshaphat? Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat was the father of? Joram. Joram. All right. Joram was the father of Isaiah. Isaiah was the father of Jotham. (laughs) There you go. 
Now, one year, Megan actually read her the cues. Megan, is she here? I think, was that? She's not reading. Oh, she was not reading. No. She, okay. She corrected me. She corrected. In the middle. That's my daughter. So today, unfortunately, outside of Casey's performance, we will not have an experience of a particularly well-told story. However, in honor of Casey, and hopefully in service of this sermon and in support of what the Spirit may be trying to say to us through this text in Matthew today, uh, we will proceed with a revised telling of the genealogy of Matthew. This one, besides being much more truncated and much less memorized, will be different in a significant way and in a way that I hope that Casey will appreciate. So here it is. Drum roll, please. Not really. Okay, sure. The genealogy of Jesus according to his great-grandmothers. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the many times over great-grandson of Bathsheba, and the many times more great-grandson of Sarah. For you see, Sarah was the mother-in-law of Rebekah, who was the mother-in-law of Leah, who was the mother-in-law of the mother-in-law of Tamar, who, generationally speaking, was the mother-in-law going down the line to Ruth and then Bathsheba. Side note here, 14 is a really great number. (laughs) Bathsheba was the mother-in-law of even more mothers-in-law, all the way to the deportation to Babylon. 14, still a great number. After deportation, there was a succession of, you guessed it, more mothers-in-laws, who did their mother-in-lawyering thing all the way, generation after generation, to marry the mother, though not in the law, of Jesus, who was born unto her, the Messiah. So, if you're keeping score, all the generations from Sarah to Bathsheba are 14 generations. And from Bathsheba to someone whose name I will never remember, 14 generations. And from that mother-in-law to Mary, 14 generations. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. With storytelling like this, we know even more that we are going to miss Casey. But while she is still here with us, let us return to Matthew's Gospel. What you probably notice that today's new revised unstandard version of this genealogy both differs from the Gospel and mirrors current events in one significant way. A lot of men have been removed from important positions. By taking them out, we still do have all those generations. 14 to 14 to 14. Generations are deeply important to Matthew and serve as an important introduction of the Messiah. The words generation and genealogy come from the same root at the center of the word Genesis. Generation, genealogy, Genesis. And Genesis, biblically speaking, is the book of creation, 
how life came to be, how it was born into existence, and from whom it was born. By putting the account of Christ's birth right after the family tree, Matthew seems almost to say that the generations and the genealogies are in some way the womb of the Messiah's genesis. What Matthew does is to show that Christ's birth is significantly connected to the broad passage of time and humanity that precedes it. And for we who hear this story and listen to this text, we have our eyes open, the lens of our sight is widened, so that we may see the genesis of salvation and new life born in our midst. It's significant that Matthew begins the genealogy with Abraham, or really with Sarah. Because their husband and wife's story is a wonderful example of, a, of how a widened perspective gave them the sight to see their salvation. You will recall how this ancient couple, old in years, were unable to have a child of their own making. A nice parallel to Mary, who has a child in an unorthodox way. And Abraham, in his despair, said to God, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. A slave born in my house is to be my heir. Abram needed his vision opened. So God widened his lens. God took him outside and said, Look up. Count the stars, if you are able to count them. So numerous shall your descendants be. These words were an elaboration of the promise that God had already given to Abram, telling him to leave the narrow confines of his estate and go. Go from your current country and your kindred and go to the land where I will show you. Because I will make of you a great nation, God told him, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that in you all of the nations of the world may be blessed. Look up, leave, go. Your name will be great, and all will be blessed. Each of these commands and each of these promises is a widening, a widening of perspective and vision through which salvation comes into sight. In a best-selling book entitled The Book of Joy, a Jewish author named Douglas Abrams describes a week of conversation and wisdom he experienced with the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. So you had a Jew, a Buddhist, and a Christian, but they did not meet in a bar, so there was no joke. <laughs> but the three of them enjoyed a great deal of laughter. In one chapter, the Dalai Lama spoke about his fellow Tibetan refugees and the many difficulties faced in his own homeland. And he said, when I look only at that, and he cupped his hands together, he said, I worry. But then he widened his hands and broke the circle open and said that when he considers the suffering of his people alongside the wider suffering of the world, his worrying, and even in a way his suffering, is diminished. As Abrams puts it, 
This is not a denial of pain or suffering, but a shift in perspective from oneself toward others. So often when we are talking about or thinking about the struggles that we face in our everyday lives, the big challenges and the smaller ones, we say to ourselves or we say to others, but my problems can hardly compare to the problems faced by other people in this world. And it seems that when we make this observation and remind ourselves of this, we do feel better. At a shallow level, it can sound like we're using someone else's pain to soften our own. But more deeply, we may be seeing what happens when we widen the lens. The Dalai Lama, Abram noted, was not contrasting his situation with others, but uniting his situation with others, enlarging his identity and seeing that he and his people were not alone in their suffering. And I want you to listen very closely to this last sentence. This recognition that we are all connected is the birth, the birth of empathy and compassion. Matthew, in the way he begins and continues his gospel, emphasizes that connection. Matthew dramatically and impressively demonstrates to us how a widened perspective can lead to the genesis and, and indeed the birth of comfort and empathy in our midst. Just as Christ was born in flesh and blood to be God with us, to be God's very own empathy and compassion with us. It may be that God, who took on the fragility and the finitude of human flesh, narrowed the lens of the Almighty so that, to meet us, so that we might widen our sight and meet the everlasting love of God. So we have this movement from narrow to broad that is at the very dynamic heart of the original community to whom Matthew wrote his gospel. Scholars believe that the community around Matthew and for whom Matthew wrote the gospel was primarily comprised of Jewish believers in Jesus as the Messiah. But they were surrounded by and perhaps had within them those Jews who did not recognize Jesus as Messiah. So Matthew attempts emphatically to demonstrate that Jesus was the very fulfillment of Jewish and Israel, Israel, excuse me, Israel's hopes. That this Messiah, Jesus, would move them from barrenness to fertility, from exodus to freedom, from exile to restoration. Matthew's community also had, we believe, a minority of non-Jews, of Gentiles. So we see in the gospel another concern of trying to widen the frame of salvation to include all people and nations. Just as Abraham was blessed to be a blessing, Matthew's original hearers were growing to see that Jesus was not only a blessing to them, but a blessing through them to all people. It is all a widening of the lens. To see the life of a God who is locally global and particularly 
universal. That brings us now to Joseph. Joseph is called by Matthew a righteous man. And if there were ever a time that we needed an example of male righteousness, it is now. What made Joseph righteous? He saw through a widened lens. When he saw his future wife pregnant before she ought to be, he looked beyond the law to Mary's well-being. For you see, righteousness is more than the laws that we enact or choose not to enact. It is a wide-sighted eye on the wider welfare. We often think of Joseph as the jilted groom, eager to cast aside his unfaithful fiancée, but what if he didn't want to let her go? What if he resolved to leave her, not because he wanted to, but because the law said he must? With his widened gaze, Joseph saw more in Mary than the law. And significant to these times, he saw in her more than his own desire. He saw the fruits of the beautiful, life-giving Holy Spirit. And he resolved not to bruise those fruits by his ill-timed or inappropriate handling. Joseph's forbearance allows the story of Christ's unfolding presence to, un to continue. If only more men would do likewise. But we are all created to look at the bigger picture so that salvation for us and for others may come into sight. We must ask ourselves, how will our actions be righteous not only to our own narrow concerns, but the larger welfare of all people? This matters at the granular level of how an individual man treats a woman and vice versa, but also at the global level of national and international policy. Does what we do, personally and in our policy, lead to a particular blessing for us or a blessing through us for all? Matthew's opening chapter is a call to practice the widening of our perspective, to see beyond our narrow sight the larger vision of our God. We do this at the Lord's table, where we go from seeing small cubes of bread and cups of juice to encountering the vision of our very communion with the body and blood of Jesus Christ. When we go downstairs to the Alternative Giving Bazaar, and note that I did not say if we go, when we go, we will turn ourselves inside out from the usual circles of our conversations that we enjoy each week to looking out at the circles of tables filled with the stories of generations of people served and serving. To see not only our struggles linked with others, but also our joys generationally linked with theirs. This is the advantageousness of our faith. 
to know our Savior and therefore to know ourselves as part of a great story of Genesis and genealogy, that through our Messiah we are linked in body and in blood with the mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers of those that we know who have come before us and those who will follow us. Keep telling that story. Amen.